0: This is 30 Day Trial. I am Weston. And I am Clark. <laughs> and this is our, well, I think we're going to combine this into our second and third week. So stocks will only have a total of three podcasts. Sometimes we'll do four, sometimes we'll do three. So this will be our medium or our, I guess not medium, our in-between um, podcasts between just getting started and then our third or fourth uh, episode per month based upon having um, someone in to interview that has much more knowledge than we do on the subject. So Clark, what have you learned or discovered about stocks since the last time that we spoke?
1: So um, funny you should bring that up. I, I, When I was younger, I got into trading Forex. And for those who don't know what that is, it's foreign exchange. Um, One of the things that I wanted to talk about was the difference between ETFs and mutual funds. And I did not actually know that Forex counted as an ETF. I, I knew. I knew how it was traded, I, I knew how to trade it because I've done it, but I didn't actually know what it was classified as and it's actually classified as an ETF, which I thought was really interesting um, when I was doing my research.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have expected that foreign exchanged money would be, or like foreign currency would be considered uh, an ETF well and for those of you that don't know etf stands for exchange traded funds so i'm trying to look back actually at a little bit of my notes on etfs because we'll talk about them a little more i wonder okay well go ahead maybe you know the answer that i'm gonna why would why would foreign currency be traded as
1: an etf okay so foreign exchange actually or just foreign exchange currencies they have their own platform so um, you the way it works is you put money into a foreign exchange account and you buy one uh, currency over another currency and you can either buy it or sell it. So it's all set up um, a certain way. So you've got U.S. dollar Japanese yen. It'll say USD slash JPY. The one that comes first, if you're if you click buy, you're buying the dollar over the Japanese yen. Or if you're selling it, that means you think the yen will do better than um, the U.S. dollar. And it's in real time. And so if it goes, if the USDJPY, if it goes down, like you can look at it the same way you would see any other... index, like the S and P 500, you pull up a, a sheet and it will show you, you know, how it's done over the last month or day or year. It's the same thing. It goes up and down like every other exchange and you buy and sell according to what you think is going to happen. And you make money in real time, you lose money in real time. And your, uh, money is leveraged last time. When I traded it last, it was leveraged 20 to one. So, um, you you buy it in units and you can make money really fast, but you can lose money really fast. So it's really important. You actually know what you're doing and it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to actually learn how to do that. And that was kind of windy, but does that answer your question? Yeah, I I guess, I guess my
0: very naive understanding of foreign exchange trading which obviously doesn't make sense now that we're talking about it was like, say we flew to Japan and we brought American dollars. We would go to a foreign exchange machine or like a service person at the airport probably and give them whatever, $200 in us dollars. And then they would exchange our money for yen uh, with some type of service fee. I'm sure because to keep them in business. Um, So we take a hit on that. But the way you're talking about the foreign exchange makes it sound, it's almost more like you're buying prospects in the capital or the the currency instead of actually buying the currency. So it's not like you could... It's not like someone's actually transferring yen into an account for you. It's more like you're buying prospects on the future of yen, which maybe that's all wrong So
1: it's it's called spot trading. And what you're talking about is, is correct, but not correct. So you actually are buying the currency, but you're, you're basically buying the right to the currency for the amount of time you have bought that specific unit. Like, um, for example, go to CNBC.com right now, Weston your computer cnbc.com right okay so Yep. you see where it says pre-market and then um the european market asia u.s bonds oil gold and then fx oh i do see that yep look on fx has gold
0: recovered from being negative <laughs> I know it was actually not really negative, but that it was, was a couple oil. months ago. Or yeah, yeah. oil was negative.
1: Yeah. It goes back to $34.55. But if you click on FX, um, it shows you e- Euro-US dollar, US dollar-Japanese yen, Great Britain pound-US dollar, US dollar-Canadian dollar, and then Bitcoin. So these currencies go up and down in real time. And with the money you have, you can buy access into that specifically traded currency for whatever time you want. And obviously, if, you're, if your money goes down too fast and you don't have very much money in your account, it just kicks you out when you don't have any more money. It's like gambling at the slot machine. Um, it's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is if you don't know what you're doing. That's why it's so important you know what you're doing because if you don't, you're going to lose a lot of money.
0: <laughs> so I guess my question would be... Or the next thing that comes to my mind that I, when I, I looked up um, Japanese yen, and I don't know, I'm just gonna make this up right now, but, um, there like one Japanese yen obviously does not equal one U.S. dollar, but the buying power, like, I wish now that I would have like, so if you went to Japan and bought lunch. In mm-hmm. its, you know, whatever two thousand yen, that as obviously doesn't mean that that's a two thousand dollar lunch. So there's a an odd conversion because right now one Japanese yen is worth one one thousandth of a U.S. dollar, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the yen is ultra ultra weak compared to the U.S. dollar. It's just when they set up their currency system, they used a different denomination of like bus fare should cost a hundred yen. And we decided that bus fare should cost 50 cents. So it's just like they name they made their numbers different than us at the very beginning. So I, I think that's what would be confusing to me versus like, I'm looking at Japanese or the U S
1: dollar to Japanese yen is up uh, just very slightly. Right. Right. So um, the way it's done and because I don't, live in a foreign country. I don't know how it's done in foreign countries, but basically whatever your currency is, your conversion currency. So you put, let's say a hundred dollars into your, um, into your Forex trading account. Um, you're, you're not, you're, you're buying units and you're spot trading. So basically the amount of money required to buy a unit is one of what it be to actually buy the currency outright. So that's why it's good cuz you don't need as much money. Back in the day before Obama took office it used to be 50 to 1. So you could leverage your leveraging power was a lot greater, but so your profit is a lot easier to make, but your loss is a lot easier to take too. But based on the strength of the currency you're investing with with the money you put in your account whether it's a US dollar or a Great Britain pound or whatever it is, that determines how many units you can technically buy. So in the platform, they determine the value of what you can buy based on the currency you put into your account to begin with. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting. I didn't realize that there was that, um, the spot trading kind of intermediary area of where you're, it wasn't just like I was handing someone one us dollar and they were handing me, whatever that conversion ratio is a thousand yen, which I, I, I guess they kind of are, but obviously actually trading currency back and forth at lightning speed would not work. So it ha- there right. has to be an intermediary.
1: Back in the day in the late eighties, um, you used to have to get on the phone and do it over the phone. Like you saw, like you used to see them do in the movies, like on the, on the, New York stock exchange, you always seem do -hmm. you, you used to have to do that, but with the internet, you don't have to. And one of the questions that might come up with people is, well, um, if you're, if you're actually buying real currency, how are there enough units available for you to buy and sell? But because the trading is done in real time, with the exception of a 36 hour window between, if I'm remembering correctly, Friday night and Sunday afternoon um, you can trade day or night all you want to and because there's so much trading going on it's almost impossible to not be able to buy or short something mm-hmm. um, just because the volume is so coming and going at all times it's it's. I mean it's technically possible to not be able to get in because there isn't an available spot to buy but it, I've never seen it happen just because like you said it's being bought and sold at lightning speed so there's always a way you can get in
0: Interesting. That is not something I feel like I would be interested in doing with my personal money. But it is definitely I could see how that would be interesting for someone who was maybe trying to do this full time or make a living off of it because there was be. I don't know, it seems
1: it seems risky for sure. It's it's pretty much the riskiest investment you can make outside of going into a casino. But if you actually know what you're doing, it's a lot of people who do well at it, but it's not like, hey, I'm going to read a book on Forex and go Forex trade. It's like, no, no, you actually need to know what you're doing or else you're going to. And unless you just want to put $10 into account and learn that way, and then you'll just lose dollars every year. month for a couple every month for a year till you figure it out um there was one other thing i was gonna say and now i can't remember what it was
0: well i what would be clark what would make like what makes a currency go down or i don't know if you know this or guess but like so something like 9 11 we are in america if there's anyone listening internationally so september 11th when terrorists flew uh, big planes into big buildings in New York to very sim- make it very simple. Did that make the u Would that make the U.S. dollar go down or like what would yeah, cause? Yes. I'm assuming that made it plummet first because of that. But
1: I, so I, the problem is the problem is in September of 2001. I was 15 years old, um, and i was not doing any sort of forex i didn't discover forex until 2008 um and but it's it's kind of the same principles um that you would go for with the stock exchange the only difference is there's like if you look at a chart of forex there's indicators that tell you when a stock is going to reverse there's Um, you you can look at the chart and what it's doing. You can look at head and shoulders, head and shoulder patterns. There's, I mean, it's hard to describe, you know, verbally over, uh, over a podcast, but you can look for signs within the charts over the last, you know, day or month or hour or week. And that will tell you when it's going to reverse. There's also, um, there's also like Fibonacci charts you can lay over the top of it. I mean, I'm getting kind of technical, but there's all sorts of different layouts that measure different things. And if based on the measurements you have on your screen and the different things, like there's charts you can add to the chart that tell you things that are happening and and they give you signs to look for, f- to tell you whether something's going to keep going up or down. Um, Fib- Fibonacci charts are... Uh, I guess Fibonacci sequence. Um, That's a popular one. There's different things you can do, but then you also have, like you said, like big time news, like, you know, Biden got elected instead of Trump or 9-11 happened. And when big things happen, you don't look at the charts and you, so, so for day-to-day trading, you just look at the charts for signs and signals that things are either going to keep going or, or going back down. And it's, it's kind of the, the, uh, the exact same sort of thing you would look for in like um, Bitcoin. But then it doesn't really matter what's going on in the charts. If some major news thing happened, like, you know, a uh, foreign dignitary got assassinated in some foreign country. And it just so happened that that stock or that that um, Forex uh, exchange was doing great. You would want to get out and go the other way because it's going to tank for at least a day or for... Yeah. Or whatever. So you so you look for signs and signals in the chart, but when major news happens, you you get out or you you pay attention to the news instead of the chart. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and, what um like I remember when um Elon Musk went on Joe Rogan's podcast and smoked a joint, the Tesla uh, stock plummeted for like one day. And then everyone realized that no one cared if the CEO smoked marijuana and then it just went right back up. <laughs>
1: like, Right. Right. So, and it's, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's kind of like, yeah. Or it's like with Boeing, the, the big Boeing fiasco with their, with their jets that were crashing and killing people. Everyone was getting out of Boeing and they're up to terrible. No great time to get into Boeing because, Boeing is such a big company that as soon as the scandal goes away, they're going to make money again. So if you if you were looking for a hot commodity to get into, mm-hmm. I mean, what better than a gigantic company that's having major problems that you know are going to get it fixed?
0: Speaking of blue stock chips or blue chip stocks that uh, you recommended, Coca-Cola, if you remember, I asked you last time what you would do with $500. Since uh-huh. the day that we recorded... And now Coca-Cola has gone down at 2.6%. So if I would have invested my $500 in Coca-Cola, I would have lost $13 so far. And I know that's only, yeah, no. And I know the point is long-term investing of what we're talking about, not day-to-day trading. But I did think it was funny. I checked uh, before we got on the call today to see how Coca-Cola was doing. That's
1: funny. That's funny. But you also have to keep in mind, too, that Coca-Cola pays a dividend every year, which is actually money they give you based on the performance of and they've paid a dividend for like 55 straight years or something so even if they go down a little bit they still pay a dividend which offsets your losses but like you said long term is more important than short term short term anyway
0: perfect transition into a dividend i think we briefly touched upon it but now that we've done a little bit more research you want to explain dividends or or how
1: you would explain them so, um, with regards to ETFs versus mutual funds, um, oh yeah, we should finish that up. Well, we well we haven't technically yeah. touched it, but yeah, yeah, um, oh, yeah, you're right. It was just the
0: forex trading. Forex um, trading was a mutual fund.
1: We got off on forex, and if I had known we were actually going to talk about forex, I would have refreshed my memory on it because I haven't traded forex in nine years. So um just because for a lot of reasons but um no but as far as dividends go um dividend are basically the return on whatever you've purchased so with mutual funds what usually happens is when you have a dividend so let's say um i mean the the difference between um uh di- or a mutual fund and an ETF ETFs, you're you're basically, you've got money in an account and the money is growing or shrinking with a mutual fund. You have money that's in an account, but it's invested as units in an index. And typically when you get a dividend um, from a mutual fund, which a dividend when, with regards to mutual funds means that your mutual fund went up and profited. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens is they're set up to where the profit is paid back into more units so if you have if you have 100 units and your your mutual fund went up three percent now you have 103 units but with etfs it just comes back as cash into your account so that's the difference there but but essentially dividends are you getting paid for what you purchased performing better than now than at the price when you bought it.
0: Yeah. And so we're kind of mixing dividends and mutual funds. But one of the biggest things that I, or mutual funds versus ETFs. So one of the biggest things that I looked at is ETFs and mutual funds. They definitely have some differences, but for most people, they're going to be pretty similar in The except for, I think, one of the biggest things that would make a difference for especially someone new to investing is that mutual funds usually have some type of minimum. And uh, we'll get into this again in a second. But I did some investing because of this podcast in a company called Vanguard. Uh, I opened a Roth IRA with them, which we can talk about in a second, but their mutual funds have a minimum of a $3,000 buy-in, which is a lot. Like some, most people probably aren't just like, Hey, you know what? I want to start playing in the stock market. I'm going to put down $3,000 for this, where an ETF buys and sells much more like a stock, so you can just buy a single share of a stock, and some of that you know there's not five cents, but um there's usually between like forty and a hundred dollars or something, maybe forty and two hundred dollars depending upon what e t f you're looking at, and you can buy and share single stocks where the mutual fund is much more of like a long term investment where you're just kind of adding a monthly deposits into to grow over a period of time and you're not really worried you know if you have five shares or three shares you're more worried about that you have five thousand dollars in that account and it's gaining interest and in growing over a period of time at least yeah. that's at least kind of what i got at reading through quite a few different pages on etfs and mutual funds they are very similar but do have some Very clear differences. And I think that's the biggest thing for our listeners is if you are going out to start investing, ETFs are cheaper to get started in and mutual funds are more expensive. And just that alone, I think, could be the difference for some people to pick an ETF versus a mutual fund, especially when so much else about them is
1: the same the same. Um, you're right about that. The The other benefit to an ETF is your dividends in an ETF are taxed as normal income, which means you can use tax deductions as if it was regular income. Whereas with mutual funds, um, depending it depends on the tax bracket you're currently in and it depends on the performance of the mutual fund. And it's pretty hard to get deductions on mutual funds, but with an ETF, it's a lot easier because it's just simply, it counts as just normal income. Whereas you have to fill out a special form with your mutual fund. So if you owe 20% taxes on your mutual fund, you owe 20% taxes on that mutual fund and you have to pay it at the end of the year. Whereas with an ETF, um, if like, let's say you're a 1099 employee and you, you own your own business, it's taxed as normal income, so it's just nothing changes, and you can get you can get deductions off of it. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: that, I could definitely see that being nice for. Um, like this is a complete side note that I won't dive too far into, but this tax year for 2020, I'm going to have some major tax write offs, like way more than I've had in the past, due to, um, just uh, being hired as a 1099 employee for one company and starting. Um, some other business things off the side as well, so that would definitely be a benefit to be able to offset possible income tax with um, tax write-offs or tax deductions. Um, so I could see that being a, a nice thing to think of, especially if you're talking about a ton of money. If you're you know if you're about to invest hundred thousand dollars or something, you just got an inheritance from your grandpa passing away or something, and you don't know what to do with the money. Then, you yep. know, you definitely need to be paying attention to those like one or two percent fees here and there because if you're not talking about pocket change, then that's a ton of money that you could be leaving on the table one way or the other.
1: Right, right. And the other thing I will say, I will, I'll actually point out one downside to ETFs because I don't feel like we've really, really, um, a lot on. Because I mean, listening to us talk, it sounds like. If I was a listener, I definitely want to do an ETF over a mutual fund. One of the pitfalls of an ETF is the same pitfall you can run into with trading Forex, which as we've talked about is an ETF, is you can buy and sell ETFs. You can buy an ETF at 10 a.m. your time and sell it at 10.02 a.m. your time. And so you can fall into the pitfall of trying to make a quick buck and then get out. And you can waste a lot of time trading ETFs. And you can start buying more flippantly because mm-hmm. you know you can get in and out at any moment. Whereas with a mutual fund, it doesn't quite work. And you have to stay in a little bit longer. Like not a lot longer, but the for example, the price of a mutual fund, you the price only posts at the end of the day. Yeah. So at, you yeah, know, five so- Eastern time. So the pitfall to ETFs is that you can get in and out as many times as you want and you can into the habit of bad investing because you can get in and out whenever you want, which can lead to losses. Which I feel like, well, I
0: haven't had any losses, but transitioning over into, I mentioned that I did open a Roth IRA account because I'm not necessarily promoting Vanguard over other investment companies. It's just the one I happen to pick due to some other things, minor things. There are IRA had a minimum buy-in or opening price of $1,000, which was less than some other options, which was one of the reasons that I picked it. And for my age, uh, you can only put $6,000 into an IRA each year, and it's built as a retirement account. So I can't pull this money out Technically, I can if I needed the money or I was going to be homeless or something. There's ways to get it out, but there's pretty big tax penalties for taking it out and not paying it back within a certain amount of time. The whole point of this is building a retirement fund. And I've also been able to set up a way where I have a monthly automatic uh, deduction from my checking account into this IRA to slowly build it up over time, which is obviously the goal. And then one of the things that we haven't actually spoken about at all, which is odd on a financial podcast, but compound interest is really what makes a Roth IRA such a good thing for long-term investing. I'm guessing you've heard of compound interest, Clark?
1: Um, compound interest, hmm. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe you should, maybe you should tell us all so we can all be better at knowing what this is.
0: So uh, I, I guess with an example is probably one of the best ways to explain compound interest. So I'm earning interest on this thousand dollars that I've put in this account and the percentage right now, isn't that great compared to probably what it was, I don't know, five years ago. 10 years ago, maybe, but I'm still earning money on this account, kind of like you would in a savings account. But every time that interest is compounded or calculated and added into my account, it also counts the interest that I've earned the previous time. So I'm looking at my account right now and it has a thousand and two cents in it, thousand dollars, two cents. So after the first compounding period, it's earned two cents of money, which obviously isn't a lot. I don't think there's anything in America that you can buy for two cents. So nothing worth celebrating over. But the next time this account goes through its payout for interest or whatever the right term for that is, the compounding interest is paid, it will be calculated off of a thousand and two cents. So I'm earning money. I'm earning interest on the interest is probably the best way to say that um so over the course of 30 years that two cents turns into you know hopefully thousands of dollars um would you like to explain it in a better way than what i just said clark
1: no um i feel like that that covers it pretty well i think a lot of times when people think of of gaining interest They're like, okay, I made, you know, 7% on my hundred dollars. So I got $7 the next month I'll get 7% and I'll get seven more dollars. It's no, it's like, no, you'll get 7% of the hundred and you'll get 7% of that seven now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so that, like you,
1: you covered that pretty well.
0: Yeah. You're earning your, earning interest on interest earned in the past. So that's why compound interest is so powerful in building money over a long period of time. It's definitely not going to make you much money if you're looking at a timeline in weeks or months. But if you're looking at it in decades, it's very powerful.
1: And actually on that point, if you look at compound interest, so if you go into a financial advisor and you ask them about um, investing $100 a month, into a mutual fund, they'll show you guides where um, if you started at age 35 and got out of your mutual fund at age 65, you will have made, you know, $250,000. Mm-hmm. But if you just started at 25 instead of 35, those extra 10 years, because of the compound effect of the next 10 years that you or the first 10 years you missed out on, or the fourth, 10, depending on how you want to look, depending on how you want to see it. But the guy as opposed to making, you know, a quarter million from 35 to 65 if you start at 25 that quarter million would have been like 1.5 million because compound interest once the ball gets rolling it really really gets rolling. So yeah,
0: that's a, I just did a quick calculation on a little online calculator. I didn't do the math on what the interest rate was well no i did the i just did one percent interest rate but i didn't do what my total total money in because like i said i had um automatic deduct or automatic deposits into the account so um 30 years future value so yeah the it, it definitely builds when you're looking at it in years and i remember having similar conversations i had a economics teacher in high school that's i think that's what they called it i was going to say finance but i think they called it economics and pretty much what he said at the first day of class and the last day of class he was just like if you learn anything from my class and it's going to help you in your life is just open a the highest interest savings account that you can find and every month just put a hundred dollars into it and in fifty years from now, well, yeah, because we were 18, so he it was like if you retire at 65 or something, he had this whole thing planned out, it would be worth over a million dollars.
1: I actually want to cover that for 10 seconds, can I? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so I'm actually gonna go against the advice he gave you, and I'll tell you why. So if you have a high interest savings account or a bank, um what people usually buy is a CD. Um, And what they usually say is you can't touch the money for two years, but here's the problem with a CD. So CDs usually don't, the the percentage you get is usually not higher than the inflation that happened that year in the market. Um, So it's usually when it comes to CDs and inflation, They're usually about the same. So you're actually, you know, if you get, you know, 2.2% interest on your CD, it looks like you're making money, but you're not. Because if you do that for 50 years, it's your value of that $100 with the added 2% is going to be the same because of inflation. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. But here's where it gets tricky. So with high interest savings accounts, at the end of the year, the government comes in and takes their profit off of that so you're actually not making very good compound interest because at the end of every calendar year they come in and they take their profit off of your profit and let's say you were to buy a annuity that pays 5% but you can't touch it for 15 years government doesn't come in and take that money until you cash that annuity out so you can still get more interest on your interest every year Mm, the, problem, yeah. the problem with high interest savings account is the government is making the interest on your interest less because they're taking, your in, they're taking a portion of your interest every single yeah, year. As income tax. Yes. So you actually don't want a high income savings account. You want an annuity or a mutual fund or some. Well, I mean, and mutual funds, you have to pay, you have to pay out at the end of the year, too. So, or a honestly, Roth IRA. Right. right. Or a Roth IRA. So I would say Roth IRA or annuity because annuities are tax deferred. You don't pay any tax until you touch that money. Mm-hmm. The so. yeah, I was gonna say one more. I think
0: maybe one more quick snippet and then we can probably end this episode. The and I don't have the exact answer for this, but I was looking into it because I don't think you can open Roth IRAs for other people. There's some it's based upon like you have to have earned the money that you're putting into it. So like I couldn't open a Roth IRA for say I had a one-year-old kid. Yeah. Um, You can't start a Roth IRA for another person. And I was just thinking like you could obviously just make up a fake business and pay the kid for like something being in a Instagram commercial or something for a commercial that you set up. Like you'd have to do some weird little like, Loopholes and probably pay some taxes and some fees. But I if can you can actually answer this
1: question, if you want me to,
0: all I was going to say is we we're just talking about starting Roth IRAs at 18. Imagine if your parents put $1,000 in a Roth IRA when you were born, the day you were born, and then just added like $20 a month to it.
1: You actually can do that. Um, so you can pay you can pay your kids up to a certain, I don't know what the dollar amount is. I'm sure it changes year to year, but you can pay your kids up to a certain, like, like if you have, um, you would have, you'd have to open like an S corporation. Like, Mm -hmm. um, but if you have an S corp, which can be a whole different episode for people who don't know, but if you have an S corp open, you can actually pay your kids through the business as if they're helping you. Yeah. Um, up to a certain dollar amount tax-free and then they can take that money and open their own Roth IRA.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But if you're obviously opening it for an infant that was born yesterday, there's not that you're doing anything You're not breaking the laws, but obviously, you know, they're not going to be able to sign the paperwork and stuff for their own IRA. So you're essentially the what you would have to keep in mind is you're paying them and they're going to have to pay taxes on the money that you paid them, which I don't remember the first year I paid taxes, but it definitely wasn't as a one year old.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And I I would assume that if you tried to start that young, that would cause problems but you can still open annuity for your kid that young so i mean they're, they're, like you said there's ways around it the other thing i think maybe the last
0: it'd be interesting i wonder i wonder if it's an issue if i would post pictures of this somehow in my hand right now when i was born my grandmother bought me savings bonds and i was going through some old paperwork and i found them and there was actually one with my mom's name on it and i have three with mine and they're pretty cool. I'll send you a picture of them. That's awesome. I don't think it would hurt to, it's not like a credit card or anything where you, if the credit card number on the front is dangerous to share with the internet, but they look like checks. Well, they kind of look like a mix between U S currency and a check. Um, but they had, they were like a CD, I think basically where they earned like 10% over the course of like three years, but I've had them for, um, (laughs) <laughs> 31 no. years yeah 31 <laughs> years um so the interest hasn't been that great but they are interesting and i'm planning on cashing them obviously to get the money more liquid and into a better way of investing um but yeah they're sitting here for on me for me to do my to-do list it's funny they were kind of talking about that and there. i have to take them yeah. to the bank and like pay cash them out kind of like a check they don't really work like a check so
1: Right. Um and I don't know if you have to pay tax on that. Um upfront I don't know how that would work. But still even 3.3% a year, you're still beating inflation by about a whole percent. So it's actually, it's actually a pretty safe investment that beats the market or beats the... beats. When I say beat the market, I mean it beats inflation. Yeah, except for the fact that I've held onto these for 31 years, and I'm pretty sure they
0: were like a two-year thing or whatever. So they're... I'm oh,
1: only- it's not a revolving three years nope. that goes and goes and goes. Nope. Oh, I, under- I misunderstood that. So I'm I only going
0: that. to earn like $30 on $300 worth of savings bonds or whatever that's in my hand right now, which is still fine. It's still a cool gift for my grandma. She basically tried to do what I was just saying with a Roth IRA, just in a older style of doing it. I would, if I had a kid, I would try and set, I would try and bend the rules to get them with a Roth IRA at age zero. I'd pay the tax income tax on it and get that compound
1: interest rolling well, I think that because you were, I was born in 86, which means you were born in 89. Yep. I'm pretty sure Roth IRAs were a thing in 89, mm-hmm. but they were not pop. And maybe they didn't become a thing until the 90s. I actually don't know the answer to that question, but back then. And Roth IRA started in 1997.
0: So my grandmother so didn't my even option. have an option to start it.
1: <sighs> All right. I, was, I I was gonna say that they probably weren't popular yet, so you probably hadn't even heard of it, even if it was real I think uh, back then. Yeah, I, I
0: think my, I think I'm, we're pretty good on this episode. We do have a guest lined up for our third episode that is um, well above our knowledge. But I think in general, my personal takeaway from this month of learning about stock market investing is, for me personally, I like the idea of buying something or setting something up for the long run, I don't really have an interest in logging into my computer every single day to see if the Japanese yen went up or down, or if a share in Bitcoin or Tesla or whatever, Ford or Coca-Cola has gone up or down. So for me, my takeaway is I would recommend people open Roth IRAs early and just set up an automatic deposit feature for whatever you think that you can afford to basically not see until you retire Mm -hmm. and just let it run and then forget about it. And then in whatever, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whenever it is that you retire, you'll open up that account and be like, oh, 30 day trial. Thank you. I now have whatever, $60,000 in this account. And I feel like I haven't even done anything
1: for it. Right. And I actually, I actually like that. Um, I would say for me, my big takeaway is the need to diversify investments. So I agree with you. uh, Contributing up to the max in a Roth IRA is really important. If you work for a company that does matching in a 401k, I only think 401ks are worth your time if you work for a company that does matching. Um, So if you work for that match up to the company limit if you can. Um, And one thing... So I'm pretty big on mutual funds. But after doing a little bit of research, I actually feel like I'm bigger on ETFs now than mutual funds. Although I agree with you, Weston, I feel like if you're going to use an ETF, you should use it for the long run. Um, The reason I would want to use an ETF over a mutual fund is just because of the way it's taxed. I like it being taxed as simple income as opposed to... um, Because that way you can do deductions off of it for that year. Um, and I also like, I've always been big on annuities because you can take an annuity and if it's a 15 year annuity and it expires, you can, you can take it and then reinvest it again for 15 more years without having to pay taxes. As long as you don't, as long as you don't actively touch the money, you can just reinvest and reinvest and reinvest without any sort of penalty or having to pay any sort of tax. So I would just say, I'm I'm saying all that stuff to say that there's four or five great ways to invest. And it's, I feel like if you really want to get the most, Oh, and choosing companies that pay um, dividends on their stocks, like individual companies like Apple and Coca-Cola and that. So just taking the bigger picture, what I learned is that people I've heard diversification my whole life and actually taking some time to look at it. I feel like that's probably the best advice anyone can give you is just just Diversify in good investments that are going to p- not pay you right now, but three years from now, you're gonna be sitting really well. Yep.
0: I think that for most people, financial freedom or financial um confidence in the future is what investing is all about. If you're interested in making this your day job, then there's probably another podcast for you because we clearly didn't cover how to do this as your main source of income. And while that could be interesting to me, that just seems very stressful. And to, I don't want to say it's gambling because I, I know that there are some people who know what they're doing and can consistently make money um, buying and selling stocks. And I don't think that it's like a, um, bad career choice. It's just not what we've really talked about. And it's not really something that I feel like is super interesting. And not that that means it's a bad thing. It's just not something that we've dived into information wise.
1: Oh, and I'm actually glad we haven't because I know a lot of people in my life who, you know, jump in with both feet into that sort of thing And it's, it's one of those things where if you're going to do that as a job, you have to accumulate a lot of knowledge over time first. And inherently there's going to be people who listen to the podcast. You go, well, if I just put my mind to it, I can do it. And it's like, yeah, that's great. But we also don't want, you know, be encouraging some guy with three kids and a wife to quit his day job so he can learn how to trade ETFs on the fly as his main source of income tomorrow. So I'm actually kind of glad we didn't go there. (laughs)
0: That does sound scary. All right. 30-day trial listeners, thank you for listening. I don't think we've officially decided what our second month will be, so I can't give you a spill for that because we're going to start looking at that as well. But uh, you'll definitely find out soon. So this is Weston.
1: Man, this is quite <laughs>
0: we'll get better at that
1: and uh, we'll
0: get at that. <laughs> I think that's I think that's it for this episode and then next time we will have um, someone to interview that knows a lot more about this than we do